Let's talk about the future of news. I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. The state of journalism today. Telling both sides of a, of a controversial story. I think you must be unbiased. It's uh, honesty, fairness, uh, truth. That is our job. That is our job. That is our job. Welcome once again to the Arrow Man in Stockholm podcast. My name is Philip O'Connor and uh, I am Arrow Man in Stockholm. And I'm currently trying to remember how to make a podcast because it's been bleeding weeks. Um, as you'll know if you follow me on social media, I've been in uh, Beijing, China, or just outside of Beijing, China for the last four weeks, basically. I think it was four weeks today was the last time I sat in this chair in my little studio slash office in downtown Stockholm. I went over to Beijing to cover the Olympics. And it's one of those things I kind of thought about trying to do a podcast once I was over there, but there was a lot of things in the way of me being able to do that, right? One was the fact that I couldn't bring the computer that I'm recording on now. So I thought maybe I might break down <clears throat> some of the things that happened over the last few weeks, right? Uh, what it was like to be at the Olympics. Um, I, there was an awful lot of stuff said before and during and after. So just to give you a little bit of insight into what it was, right? The reason podcasts haven't been more sort of plentiful is the fact that uh, I was told, right, you can't bring or you shouldn't bring your regular computer, right? So before all of us went over there, you might remember these discussions about cybersecurity, about burner phones. You would have heard athletes saying they were being given burner phones and advised not to bring their stuff over and that kind of thing. Um, Working for one of the world's biggest news agencies, that caused a problem because they were very, very nervous. And I think it has happened before. I don't know the exact details, but it has happened before that um, state security agencies have received access or managed to get access to this news agency's internal systems, right? Now, that's really fucking bad, right? Because uh, all of us somewhere have sources. We all have people. We all have numbers. We all have uh, contact details. We all have notes. We all have interviews. We have pictures. We have videos. Um, a lot of what we do never gets published at all. So we're sitting on a whole heap of information that might be of interest to somebody, right? And you can kind of say, why would the Chinese or anybody else be interested in what an Irish journalist living in Stockholm has on his computer, computer, right? And that's, you know, I'd be the first to say, well, they probably shouldn't, right? But if they get access to it, and then, you know, I've forgotten about somebody, I've forgotten about some audio recording that's on my computer and somebody gets into trouble or somebody gets arrested or somebody gets uh, found out or that kind of thing, you know, so I thought, okay, this is not just the risk to me, it's a risk to other people as well, and they're risks that we just cannot afford to take. Did they, did Chairman Mao get access to everything on my phone? I don't know. Did he get access to the border laptop I had? I also don't know, but you kind of have to take precautions and you have to try to protect people as you go along. So that was the main reason for uh, for doing stuff. And then the other thing was that, you know, I, I love those huge events, right? They're just brilliant fun to get in there. You're talking about, and, you know, I kind of sound like I'm hyping myself here, but you're, you're there with the elite, right? You're there with the greatest sports writers in the world. You're there with the absolute creme de la creme of photographers. And to work alongside these people, and we're watching the absolute greatest winter sports athletes in the world, bar none, right? They're all pretty much there, apart from the odd case of COVID or the odd injury or that kind of thing that made them miss out but we're, we're watching the absolute best and being in that environment and working on that for you know the 16 or 17 days of competition and all the other things that go with it is always just amazing it's just so much fun and it's so stimulating and you, you get you develop so much in that time 50 years old and you think oh jesus you know i know everything no no you know you learn so much from being with all these other people you know 
Um, the process itself was a weird one. So we obviously we had to go over there. We had to get COVID tests. You know, I think it was two COVID tests within seventy four hours, seventy two hours, and they had to be negative. And it, all your papers had to go to the Chinese government. And on your burner phone, then you had to have this uh, health app installed, right? So for fourteen days beforehand, you were recording your temperature, and you were saying, you know, if you had any symptoms of COVID, and of course nobody had any symptoms of COVID. And then came the process of going what they called going into what they called the closed loop, right? So this is the way they decided. Now you might remember at the Olympics in Tokyo, they kind of had a bubble, right? So you had a fourteen-day modified quarantine. You were able to go to the venues and that, but you weren't allowed to really leave your hotel room. The Chinese went one better, right? And this is the thing about the Olympics, and this is the thing about working with a, a country that's not exactly a democracy, right? They created this closed loop, and that started really. <clears throat> When we got on the plane in Paris, France, we flew from Stockholm at like six o'clock in the morning, went to Paris, uh, checked all the way through, et cetera, et cetera. And the moment we stepped on the plane, that was it. Masks on, no messing. Uh, you're in the bubble now. So you flew us direct to Beijing and you get off the plane in Beijing and straight away you're into that thing of, okay, they're testing you and they stick the, the pokey stick up your nose and they stick it down your throat. I think they're actually decent enough to do, you know, two separate ones or at least do the throat first and then up your schnozzle. Uh, but an awful lot of people found it really, really painful. So when we arrived there, you know, getting off this plane into a terminal that was completely empty, right? No Chinese people. The only Chinese people there were volunteers and once they were inside the closed loop, once they inside the bubble, the bubble they had to stay there as well and when they came out they had to do 14 days of quarantine and then another seven days at home but that's another kettle of trout so straight in there and then you go downstairs and everybody all the chinese people all the volunteers we met all wearing full ppe right so visors masks white suits uh, boots latex gloves their phones in plastic bags so nothing could get onto them you know like so the whole thing really was and as i say in this empty terminal not another soul around the place no shops open no duty free i think there was a single water fountain but the other thing is that in a, a country like that you've got loads of people that you can just throw at it so you go okay do we need do we need 50 people to test right you people go there and test away and that's it and if they have to sit around for an hour that's fine nobody's going to say no to the gig because you know i have a feeling you might end up somewhere you really don't want to be if you do so from there then, we were put on the buses and we were brought to hotels, which were also inside the bubble. So these hotels have these huge metal gates outside. And again, the people who are on the inside of them are inside the closed loop and everybody else is on the outside. So security, all that, they had to stay in the same hotel. They weren't allowed outside the loop either. And you drive up and they open the big metal gate and you get off the bus and you get brought straight to your room. It's like, okay, they give you your key and, you know, there's none of this, oh, you know, you have to sort of uh, give them your visa card. and No, no, just get in your fucking room, right? And you wait for the result of your test. So those results came reasonably quickly. Uh, and then we were allowed out of the room, but not out of the hotel, right? So, you know, you go downstairs, you can have a look around, there's a little bit of a shop with loads of stuff in it, you don't know what it is, and you go to the restaurant, and that's it, right? There's no gym, there's no pool, there's masks on the whole time, there's none of that kind of crack, you know? So you have a bite to eat, you go back to your room. And then the following day, then, we went up to the mountains. So I was covering uh, freestyle skiing, snowboarding, was, were part of it, you know, but most of what I was doing was cross-country skiing, biathlon, and then Nordic combined and ski jumping. Nordic combined is basically ski jumping and cross-country skiing in one sport. So on the Sunday morning then, this is the week before the games began, we got into a car and we drove all the way up to the mountains in Zhangjiakou, which is like 200 kilometers northwest of Beijing. So often you'll find an Olympic city that they'll say, okay, it's in this city, but the actual events take place, you know, up to a couple, you know, it could be 500 kilometers away. It was the Stockholm Winter Olympics. Most of the events will probably take place in Östersund, which is like 550 kilometers from Stockholm. So they drive you up there. 
there was another place I can't, I can't remember what it was called Yanking I think it was called that was where all the alpine skiing and all that kind of stuff was so we were driven up there and the same thing you're in a closed loop so in the taxi there's like you know, this plastic sheet you know this plastic curtain between us and the driver so we weren't ever allowed to talk to him without that plastic sheet being in between us if we got out of the car and said oh you know can you come back later we had to do so through the window of the car and he wouldn't open it you know so drove us a couple of hours, two and a half, three hours up to the mountains, and we moved in. We basically checked into a purpose-built hotel with the, the first people to stay in these rooms, you know. So it really was, it was like, okay, rather than giving these Westerners uh, something that already exists, we're just going to put them into something that's completely new. And again, you arrive in, and there's PPE, and there's metal detectors, and you check in, and the person's wearing a visor and a mask, and, you know, communication is really difficult, and you go, okay, what the hell's going on here? But... If that's what it takes, if that's what you have to do to get the Olympics going on, well, then that's fair enough, you know? So that was okay. You know, the, the Olympics is basically this huge logistical challenge, right? It's moving journalists around the place. It's moving athletes around the place. It's having venues and food and transport and all these things ready to go. And I think in some ways, the discussion was had among many people. And as I say, I thought about sort of recording it, but then, you know, there's very few journalists actually want to speak about these things because they don't want to seem ungrateful and they also don't want to speak out of turn. You know, when I'm speaking here, I'm speaking of my own experience, not of what Reuters thought of it. You know, like that's, you know, what they thought of it, you'll have to ask the managing editor who brought me there, you know. <clears throat> but um, the whole thing seemed to work reasonably well. But because we had to get in there so early, you know, you're running around the place trying to get your team together, trying to get your people together, saying, okay, who's doing what? Where does this bus go? And you always want to get to the venue like a day or two beforehand and check everything out and work out your buses and work out all that kind of thing. Because if you don't do that and you turn up at the wrong place or you get in the wrong bus, and you always do it once. You always end up in the back arse of nowhere or the bus takes a turn and you go, hang on a fucking second. And even though I think it was maybe the last day or after the last event, I got on the bus going the wrong direction. Now, luckily I knew I was going to be stopping further along the line without going out of closed loop so I could jump off it, you know. So that was the story for the first few days then. And then as teams start to arrive, some teams are really, really smart. Uh, usually the ones that, you know, they want press, they want their sponsors to be able to see them, they want their stars, or, you know, even if they don't have that many stars, the people that try to build into stars, they want them to talk to the media. So you go down, you talk to them, and sometimes there'll be people who might have a chance for medal. Sometimes, as in the case of one Australian girl, she was there as a reserve, so her chances in the, of taking part in the bobsleigh, I think her name might have been Hannah, were extremely limited, you know, so there's no, there's a chance that, you know, she's not going to compete at all, and in the end, I, think, I don't think she did compete. The Swedish biathlete Stina Nilsson was part of the six-person team there, and she wasn't, or the six women in the team there, and she didn't get picked at all, and I had interviewed her beforehand for the Reuters News Agency. Uh, so, you know, sometimes these people want to profile themselves, they'll meet you, they'll, you can do an interview. And it's always a really good way of explaining the sport to people who don't understand it, right? Because in places like Germany and in Belarus and in Russia and Finland and Sweden and Norway and France, people understand what biathlon is and cross-country skiing is. They have the Alps or they have their mountains, they have their traditions. They've been watching this for years. But the wider world doesn't really watch these things. In North America, cross-country skiing, you know, until really recently, they hadn't won a medal since... from. 1976 until 2018 and then Jesse Diggins and Kicking Randall won I think I actually might have played a little section of that on uh, the Irish and Sweden podcast because I was there at the time it was just such an amazing thing now Jesse won a couple of medals in uh, in Beijing as well so that's becoming a thing but for the most part people in America have no clue what's going on they might know a little bit about the ice hockey but that's it so as a journalist who's dealing with the global media or who's part of the global media, you're trying to explain these things to people. And these press conferences can be a great way of doing so. And we did that all week and we met um, 
uh, was it Sophie uh, Sadowski, uh, Zoe uh, Sadowski Sinnott, who uh, went on to win gold on in Slopestyle, I think it was for New Zealand, a wonderful, you know, coach Sean, they were brilliant people altogether. But they really helped us to explain these sports. And I, coincidentally, it was actually the New Zealand team who helped us explain the sport of surfing in Tokyo to people. So kudos to New Zealand and Australia and some of the Americans who really made themselves available for that, you know. But um, in the meantime, we were living in this bubble. So we were going around in these buses or going around in uh, games, cars or games, taxis and getting driven around the place. And um, then the games actually get underway. And that's when you kind of settle into things, right? Now, you can ask yourself, uh, and one of the questions we're getting at the moment, as I'm speaking to you now, the war between Russia and Ukraine or the invasion of Ukraine by Russia is starting. And I was, you know, I was up very early this morning because I'm still suffering from jet lag. And I was thinking about this thing of, I've done a World Cup in Russia. I've done a Winter Olympics there in 2014, was it? Yeah, 2014. And then the World Cup in 2018, it would have been. And there's all this stuff talked about politics. And uh, I think Thomas Bach, the president of the IOC, was saying that, oh, you know, you, you know, the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, we can't become a political organization because if we do, that's the end of it. Mate, you are a political organization. And giving the games or giving the World Cup or giving the Euros to places like this, sorry, that is a political choice. You can't just say, no, no, we don't talk about politics. You are politics, right? You've just had uh, games in a country like China where there is no such thing as freedom of speech, right? Now, I'm not going to be ungrateful at all. I had a marvellous time in China. I found the whole place fascinating. But there's no such thing. There's no right to freedom of speech in China. The people are magnificent. They're the nicest, friendliest people you could come across. If you ask one of them a question, all of a sudden you'll have five of them trying to help you. And it doesn't matter that they don't speak English and you don't speak Mandarin. They'll do their best to try to help you uh, to find what it is you're looking for, to do the things that you're doing. They're the most polite people, right? But the, the fact remains that they're not free, that these countries aren't free. And the time for talking about these things is not when we arrive in the days, in the run-ups to, in the, run-up to the games or when the events are taking place. That's not the time to talk about these things. The time to talk about these things is 10 years before, 15 years before, and the decision has to be taken that, look, unless you do certain fundamental things and act in certain fundamentally decent ways, then we can't do this. We can't have games and places like that. And we're coming off a hell of a run of, as I say, Russia twice. Um, I've been to, you know, UFC events in Abu Dhabi. We have a World Cup coming up in Qatar. It's a fucking disaster and has been for ages now. You know, like, and you can ask yourself why. Part of it is to do with politics. Some of it's to do with corruption, certainly in the case of football. Some of it's to do with pig-headedness. Some, like an awful lot of it is to do with money at the end of the day because, you know, places like Sweden and Norway, the voters have decided, no, we're not paying for a Winter Olympics and we're not paying what it costs to have a Winter Olympics. And that's when the vacuum is created and places like Beijing and China step in and Qatar step in and Russia step in and they launder their reputations by doing these things. But there's no point in anybody saying to me or any other journalist or any other athlete that, hey, you should boycott that, right? And I'll tell you why. Because if I don't go somebody else is going to go, right? That's just the nature of news. You know, you can't go, right, well, we're just not reporting on that. Because the interest ultimately lies with the fans, the consumers, the advertisers. This is what they want, right? So if I don't go, and Sebastian Samuelsson, who's a Swedish biathlete that I have any amount of time for, and who was quite critical to the whole idea of having a Beijing, he doesn't go, somebody else is going to take his place. Why should he as an athlete with an extremely limited career span, right? If he's lucky, he'll get to go to three, possibly four Olympics, right? Why should he skip that? Because 
a bunch of bureaucrats decided to give those games to Joe. Why should that damage his career? And you can talk about principles all you like. You can talk about, oh, you know, you shouldn't go there, you shouldn't promote that. Well, I'm sorry, I have to go where the news is, right? If, like, if I was to stick to my principles the whole time and only report on things and only interview people and only go to places where I agree with everything, I'd never leave the fucking house, right? So the idea that in somehow that somehow the media or the journalists are sort of complicit in this. No, no, no. This is way, this is all happening way above the pay grade of athletes and journalists, right? That is, it's, we just don't, like, I love the fact that people think that we have that influence. We just don't, right? This is happening way outside our wheelhouse. Now, can we do a better job of holding the IOC to account? Can we do a better job of uh, making sure that we find out, you know, if... Uh, incentives, shall we say, have been offered. Can we do a better job of finding that out and of illuminating it? Absolutely, we can do a better job of doing those things. But you cannot expect journalists or athletes to be the ones who do the legwork when that's these aren't our decisions to make. You know, now it made it really difficult because. At times, I, would, I had one day where I went mad writing articles completely. I just kept story after story after story. And what sometimes happens there is, I don't have time to talk to everybody myself. <clears throat> so colleagues from TV will say, look, if we interviewed this person, can you write a text article to go with it? And they'll send you a transcript of the interview, and then you turn it into a text that will complement the TV script or, or the, the images that they have and the pictures that our photo- photographers have taken during the events, you know? And, um, you know, we covered absolutely everything. On that day, I think we covered... Uh, how sport is organised in Norway. We talked to Gus Kenworthy, the UK American skier who was over there skiing for Great Britain and who wasn't out and gay in 2014. He was very much gay, but he certainly wasn't out because he was afraid at that time of being an out gay man of what might happen to him in Russia if that happened, right? So we did those stories. But, you know, and let me be very clear here, the chances of doing anything in, in China were beyond remote, right? Partly because of the closed loop, we couldn't get outside. We couldn't go anywhere to do anything. You can't just nip off to some village and go, hey, I'm going to sit down and eat some barbecue drinking, uh, chicken and drink some moonshine with these lovely people here and watch the opening ceremony with them. Now, you could do that in Italy, except they probably wouldn't have moonshine. They'd have like amaretto and uh, some fantastic pasta or something. You know, you could do that in Kiev many years ago. Uh, we did that in 2012. I think we went into the, the forest there and we found people to talk about what the games meant or what the... Uh, the the euros meant to them you know but you couldn't do that in china because of the closed loop and i honestly don't think that you would have been able to do that anyway right because this again is not a free society you see what they want you to see right and once that happens then we're not really in a position where we can create or where we can do journalism that's it's really really difficult to do you know that when we talk about talking to the truth when we talk about speaking the truth to power and holding people to account it's so difficult in that situation now one of the things that does happen at the at the olympics is the ioc the international olympic committee has a briefing every day and there you can try but even there you're going into a sort of a gladiatorial situation where they know the questions are going to be asked and they have their answers and they're going to give you those answers and it doesn't matter what questions you ask you're going to get those answers anyway so if you took the Chinese player Peng, a Chinese tennis player who put out a thing on one of the Chinese social media apps saying that she had been sexually assaulted by uh, some bureaucrat over there and then she very quickly deleted it and who basically hadn't been seen since. And she made an appearance during the Olympics and of course we're also sprinting around the place trying to get the first picture, the first sighting of it, trying to get that confirmed. 
but everything that was said around that was stage managed everything that was you know when she turned up to watch the, I can't remember what event it was she watched I went looking for the biathlon one day and she didn't show up but Thomas Bach the president of the IOC did and that just went on and on and on Valieva the Russian uh, figure skater the 15 year old who tested positive for doping again another circus that goes around there. but when you ask these questions you're not going to get any answers, you know. So again, it gets back to the point of if that's the forum where you're trying to do your journalism, where you're trying to get your answers, it's already too late, right? The fact that a Russian athlete would test positive for doping is unfortunately not really a great surprise to any of us who've worked in sport for any length of time, right? But the questions are not really to be asked there about that specific person because we know about Sochi in 2014. I've been in the building where uh, all sorts of manipulation of doping tests took place, you know. So we're kind of looking in the wrong place. We're, we're we're attempting to shine the spotlight on the wrong thing. Now, that's not to say that you don't have to be there and that you don't have to report, but the real value is in, the, you know, the, the, the meat and drink, the, in the unglamorous work of rolling up your sleeves and finding out about these things. So from a personal point of view, once the games get started, you're really into that sort of thing of covering events. And what you're looking to do is you're looking to tell stories about personalities. Now, luckily, everybody in the Olympics, like, you know, this is the reason they're Olympians. This is the reason, you know, why they're among the most special people in the world is because they all have great stories. They all have to pass through some sort of adversity, right? There's thousands of athletes at the Olympics. Um, some of them are working two jobs. I know one of the f- uh, female Norwegian snowboarders was working in, in childcare just to get the money together to go over there and represent our country in snowboard because there's so little money in it. Yeah, everything goes to cross-country skiing, biathlon and ski jumping in that country. So there's all these stories. You're literally falling over them the whole time. But it's also really difficult because you've only so many hours in the day and you're trying to tell the stories of the winners and trying to tell the stories of the races and put things in context and provide for that audience. But you're also trying to tell these great stories that come at the side of it. So one way that I was able to do that was to talk to Thomas Maloney Vestgård, who's a, an Irish skier, born and raised in Norway, a Norwegian father, Irish mother. You know, to, like Thomas was a fantastic guy, but he was saying, look, at you know, if smaller nations used the expats like him, it would be much more competitive at the Olympics rather than just having, you know, rich lads who decide, okay, you know, I'm going to ski for Brazil or I'm going to ski for Scotland or, you know, whatever. But if you actually nurture the people who are out there and who are part of our Irish communities abroad or part of our Swedish or British or American communities abroad and go and find these people, there's some great stories out there to be told so it becomes a sort of a an attritional couple of weeks then because you're going to venues all the time you're covering events all the time you're trying to write things all the time and some days you might write two three articles other days you might write 10 articles then somebody else might be working on something and they're saying oh you know can you ask the russian athletes or the chinese athletes or the irish athletes or the swedish athletes where you are about this person or that person or this issue uh, about paying about all these things you know and like stories came up about abusive situations in, in snowboarding and freestyle skiing with an american coach and you're running around the place trying to chase all these things you know so like i say i find absolutely it's the most stimulating thing that you can do and one of the things that i discovered that was like really beneficial so we're working in a multimedia age now i mentioned earlier on that tv producers and camera people say okay here's uh, here's the transcript of what we did or here's the the audio recording of the interview can you do something with that you go yeah okay i'll try but it's always so much easier to do that if you talk about it beforehand so i would say to people right uh, this is what I'm going to do today. These are the stories that I think uh, are going to come out of this today. I was actually saying to the photographers, some of our lads are Asian lads who don't have a whole lot of knowledge of winter sports. So I'd give them the numbers. I wouldn't even tell them the stories a lot of the time. But I'd give them the numbers and say, look, these six to eight people are in with a show to win it. Was I right all the time? No. The German cross-country skiing women in particular surprised the shit out of me on a couple of occasions for various reasons that we won't go into here. But... Um, 
they were fantastic and they got a couple of relay and sprint medals and that kind of thing and uh, it was really exciting so most of for most of the part i got it right but when you can tell them things right because a photographer they'll take pictures of what's in front of them that's fine right but if they have context if you can say to them right hannah and elvira erbe in the swedish biathlon team are sisters hannah was part of the swedish team that made a breakthrough in 2018 in pyeongchang and they came home with a heap of medals and hannah became an olympic champion now, her younger sister is widely considered as being even more talented, and she's also the most hard-headed 22-year-old you'll come across. This kid's a born winner in a way that Hannah's a winner too, right? But her sister, her younger sister, Elvira, is a born winner, right? So you tell your photographers that. And you say, okay, they're wearing bib number 12 and number 46. So anything you can get of those two girls together, I can use. Because I'm going to be writing this, you know, call it family affair, sister act. The headlines write themselves. And even if they don't win, it doesn't matter. Now, as it turns out, they won gold in the women's sprint race, which, you know, again, this is just the culmination of all the great headlines and the, ph- the photographs that they've taken and the research that we've done and how I was up in Ostertrum to talk to them just after Christmas when they were training and to see them train and all these things. So Napoleon likes his general to be lucky, but then, as Gary Player said, the, harder, the more I practice, the luckier I get. So you're able to brief the photographers then to do those things and you're able to tell TV people, okay, this is what we're going to do here. And in that way then, you can put together a real multimedia package, right? A real multimedia package that goes out to people. We did things like that about the weather. We did things like that about so many different, about Chinese, Lunar New Year is a big thing in Asia and they celebrated it. And at our hotel, they were making handmade dumplings. So you go along and I took the pictures for that one because I don't know why I didn't grab one of the Reuters photographers who would have taken far better pictures than I would, but it just happened to be there and we were filming and we were asking questions and doing stuff in the kitchen. This guy's handmaking dumplings and talking about, you know, how this is their Christmas, how you would always travel home and the Chinese people in the bubble, they were unhappy not to be at home, but it was great to be there with the foreigners. They were trying to do something all this just happens you know and uh, that's real multimedia work that's how you do it. it's not just okay here i have a stock photo of somebody's hand and a smartphone kind of shit that you'll see in a lot of places it's actually thought out before you go and do it uh, just a little note that <laughs> one of those things that sort of struck me i had the absolute privilege of working with some of the greatest photographers in the world kai faffenbach dylan martinez hannah mckay uh, Mike Blake, you know, these are all people I've known for many years and I have huge respect for. And anybody who has ever worked for the Reuters news agency as a photographer, going back to Kevin Carter in South Africa, a brilliant photographer who committed suicide, uh, who really struggled with some of the things that he saw towards the end of apartheid and when he was covering stuff in Africa. These are just brilliant people, right? So I would never describe myself as a photographer because I take pictures, right? These guys make pictures they put so much thought and effort and skill and creativity into what they're doing and it's so obvious when they do it that i'm just a bluffer you know so just i would never say you know are you a photographer no i take pictures but i'm not a photographer because a photographer that would be like you know i don't know what i would compare it to really but it's just it's such a skilled profession and it's something that has become really watered down over the last few years uh, in that you know, I think in 2008, then, the financial crisis, there was loads of people made redundant. And somebody made the point to me that so many people, creative people who sort of were sick of doing, you know, working in finance or whatever, and they bought themselves either a guitar 
or a digital camera and they became in inverted commas musicians or photographers right now i'm not pissing on anybody who loves to create stuff by themselves right who loves to be you know i do it i make music here in my little studio i take pictures i write i film i do all these other things sometimes i get it right sometimes i get it wrong but my skill set what i'm educated for what i'm trained to do is i'm trained to write about shit right now i can do all the other things i'm also trying to to film video on that am i trained to take pictures i am absolutely not trained to take pictures so it's just one of those words i absolutely it's so, i find it so insulting to people who go oh yeah i'm a photographer no no you're not i'm sorry not yet there's so much that goes into to learning to do that and to do it brilliantly and oh i forgot to mention the wonderful lisi nice now that i worked with in uh, in tokyo and lisi nice was there taking just brilliant uh, photographs of, of areas that if you go back over my instagram over the last while i would have mentioned a lot of these people but it was amazing to see the kind of work that they produce and it struck me as well that um, it's the kind of thing that what they do and the images they produce are so much more powerful than pretty much anything I could ever write. So I might have an event, you know, that will be, you know, I literally wrap in tomorrow's chips, you know, a minute after midnight when I've written that report, right? But uh, an iconic image that they take and some of the images that they took of Thomas Maloney, Thomas isn't, you know, he came in, was it 14th, 16th place? 14th place, I think it was, in one of the races, you know? So it's not, you know, it's not going to make the front page anywhere. But the images were so iconic that it wasn't because of the result. It's because the image is absolutely brilliant. And pictures have a way of doing that that pretty much nothing else does in media. You know, especially in, you know, if you grew up in newspapers, seeing that in print or seeing that in a larger format is just fucking staggering, you know. So we worked our way through that. And like I say, I mean, you can probably hear how delighted I was. But then what always happens is you get to the very end and you kind of mentally check out a couple of days before the Olympics ends, right? It's usually, if you see the Olympics as being sort of, you know, 17 days of competition or whatever, 16 days of competition, it's always on the Thursday before the closing ceremony. The closing ceremony is on a Sunday that I find myself through no, not by my choice, but the rest of the world starts to catch up. You start to think, when am I checking out? How do I get back to the airport? When's my last race? Can I go home on Monday? Or, you know, can I change my flight and go home Monday morning? Can I wait until Tuesday? Okay, you'd have to get a bus down the mountain. That's going to take four hours. Do you really want to get up at one o'clock in the morning and sit in a bus for four hours and do that? And you go, nah, I probably don't fancy much of that, you know? So you start to mentally check out. Now, you still have to stay in the moment. You can't just go, ah, fuck this. I'm not doing this anymore. You still have to watch the sport. You still have to keep up... Um, you know, you have to see what's going on in your sports. If, you know, somebody all of a sudden has passed, you know, they come out of quarantine, they're going to compete or that kind of thing. You go, okay, yeah, so you've got to be on top of that. But then people start to leave because the events come to a close. So the freestyle skiing, I think, I can't remember, I think it ended on that Friday, I'm going to say, or maybe there's one more event on Saturday morning or whatever. But for the last day and a half of the Olympics, that was gone. You know, snowboarding was well gone at that point. You know, now usually when you do freestyle skiing, you do snowboarding first and then freestyle skiing and you mix them up a little bit in the middle and then one takes over. So um, that was what was going on there. You know, so you find yourself sort of checking out. Now, this time around, because of the closed loop and this went on the whole time, it was like, murder to get out of there so you can't just jump in a taxi you can't just say right i want to get out of here because access to transport is limited and often the day after the competition ends you'll find that the bus schedule goes down from being you know once every 15 minutes to once every hour so you have to kind of get all that together so i always have because i cover cross-country skiing and the last race usually of the olympics is uh the women's 30 kilometer race and this time around it was freestyle which is you know kind of looks like a skating motion classic style looks like a jogging motion 
and I had that race. And then they moved the race back because it was really cold up in the mountains. Like, you know, certain days, minus 20, minus 15 with a serious wind chill and competition still went ahead. So then <clears throat> uh, I had the last race. It was moved back until 11 o'clock in the morning. So technically, you know, all going well. I could have got out of there that evening. I could have got back down to Beijing on a fancy high-speed train, which was really cool. But I didn't. I said, okay, I'll, I'll leave it and I'll wait and I'll go home on Tuesday instead, as was originally booked. So did the race and got back to the hotel and pretty much everybody is gone. And a couple of photographers were left were going in the middle of the night. They were getting taxis because they had so many, like, you know, 90 kilos of cameras to bring back with them. And then all of a sudden I was kind of in the hotel of my own. And it really is, you kind of think it's going to be like the last day of school before the summer holidays and everybody get together and there'll be drinks and hugs. and Nah, nah, it just slips away from you and then you're left in a situation where you've gone from this massive buzz right this incredible crack it's so much fun so much stimulus and then all of a sudden that's gone and then so on the monday then i got up i checked out i packed up everything and i went back down to uh to beijing on the train uh and you know then again because you know all the buses are screwed up and that kind of thing and you have to get the bus to what they call the mpc the main press center then you have to get another bus i was literally you could see the hotel from the bus station but not because the closed loop you weren't it was actually a connecting passage from the hotel to the convention center where the main press center was right and you weren't allowed to use it why i will never know but you had to get on a bus and the bus and i drove around and round and round you know because i had to get around the block and then all of a sudden you got there like 10 minutes later and that bus was only once an hour so yeah that began the long road home and we stayed there on monday night and then got up at like four o'clock in the morning i think the alarm went off left the hotel 25 to 5 to the airport there about quarter past five checked in everything else like that i had to wait until 10 o'clock for the flight the flight went to Incheon in Korea, so it went uh, east first. We want to go west, but it went east first and then west, adding five hours onto it. So it ended up taking like 15 hours to get to Paris, and then three hours plus a half hour delay in Paris, and then you get back here. And that brings me to where I'm sitting this morning, because uh, this morning <coughs> I really did hope to have the time to bring you a podcast, but uh, I woke up at four o'clock this morning uh, because of jet lag. I went, okay, but there's no point in staying in bed here. So I got up and had breakfast and pulled everything together and came into my little studio here now from where I am talking to you. And as I got up this morning, um, I saw on the news that Russia had invaded Ukraine. There was shelling going on. There was fighting going on. I'm. It's a disturbing thing because some of the people that I was working with and some of the people I was hanging out with and eating breakfast with and getting these 10, 15 minute shuttle buses with and talking to them about, okay, you know, you can see these two are sisters or this guy has this many medals and Norway might win, you know, 15 gold medals and set a new record today. Can you take pictures of them? Some of these people are going to go from covering the Olympics to going to Ukraine. Carlos Maria, who I... Um, covered sailing with at the Tokyo Olympics is already there I was watching his Instagram he was one of the few of us who wasn't uh, in uh, in Beijing and he's already there I don't know where he is I'll keep an eye out for him right enough you know so it's kind of gone from one extreme to the other now again it's an enormous privilege and I have to say that I'm hugely grateful forget the regime forget all the things forget freedom of speech and forget not being able to do proper journalism because you couldn't get out right I'm hugely grateful to the Chinese people for their warmth and their generosity and their dignity and for all the great things that they did there but you kind of get brought back bumping down to earth when a big news story like this breaks. And this is not the first time, you know, we've an awful habit as a human race of planning wars just after these great celebrations like the Lunar New Year and the Olympics. And, you know, when we should be all gathering together around the best of who we are, we decide to go back to being the worst of who we are. And that's kind of where we are now. Um, so what I suppose 
want to sum up the whole experience i had a brilliant time it was fascinating it was so brilliant to work with these great people and to be reminded again of the creativity and the dedication that's out there you're talking about photographers sitting in the snow for two three four hours maybe five hours at a time to bring you these fantastic images that tell you the story far better than i ever could you had text reporters standing there waiting, 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 you know, for an hour, an hour and a half afterwards until NBC and the Olympic Broadcast Service and everybody gets hold of these athletes to tell you the story and why you've just seen what you've just seen. Um, so hugely dedicated people, hugely talented people, not the wealthiest people in the world by any means. I'd pay all of them a million quid just to be there for a month if I could. Uh, but and now they're back and they're bringing us other things that you know you might call the Olympics frivolous, and that the things that they're bringing you now are more important. But in some ways, the Olympics is just as important. And I suppose we're going to end up back where we started talking about the Olympics and politics and how the Olympics it can't avoid being a political thing. And if we were to use these things the way they're supposed to be used, as an aspirational thing, as a reward for being the kind of society that actually lives the Olympic values of inclusion and of equality. That, you know, you can't, you know, you never give your dog the treat before they do the trick, you know. And that's what we've been doing, it seems, over the last few years. That We've been saying, okay, we'll give you this. Now, can you behave in this way? It's going, no, you know, we're putting the cart before the horse there. We've got to get back to a situation where you only get these things if you act in this manner and if you continue to act in this manner because you can talk about freedom all you want you can talk about politics all you want but there are certain things there are certain inalienable human rights there are certain things that are just not acceptable and what we're seeing now in the wake of this olympics is that that's where we're gone again there's some people trying to make the unacceptable acceptable they're trying to take away the rights and freedoms that have been you know part of the cornerstone of europe for so long and no matter what happens with these things, you're going to get these fantastic journalists, you're going to get these brilliant photographers and these great TV producers, these brave and talented and funny fucking people uh, for, the, for the most part. Uh, you're going to get them doing the work that brings it all to you. So I hope you've enjoyed this look back over the Beijing Olympics and a bit of a look forward to what's coming up. Uh, next week I'm going to be in Dublin, so no doubt there'll be somebody over there who's going to be willing to talk to me for the Our Man in Stockholm podcast. But uh, for the time being, look after one another. Um, remember that when you're watching news coming out of these war zones and that, remember to check where it's coming from. Who's saying it? Why? Why now? What, what do they want me to do? What are they trying to provoke in me? And if you do that, you'll be a long way, especially on social media, you'll be a long way towards gaining a better understanding of what it is is happening in this world at the moment. Take care out there, and I'll talk to you again very, very soon.